morning, everyone. I'm Mike Yowski, and I'm one of the elders here. And I am so thankful that I have the privilege of being able to open up God's Word with you this morning. And um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find your way to James chapter 4. Meanwhile, uh, I'd like to introduce you to someone. And uh, we have the photo here. This is uh, Karam Katari Chand. And uh, they live in England right now, but they met in India where they had an arranged marriage. And uh, you might look and think, well, this spry couple is obviously celebrating somebody's 90th birthday. Wrong. They are celebrating their 90th anniversary. He is 110, and she is 103. 90, 9 years together, faithful to one another. Well, you might wonder, as they're getting ready to go into the Guinness World Book of Records, what their secret was. And that's what uh, many people ask them. And you know what? This couple is so spectacular. They didn't come up with one. They came up with five. All right? Here's number one. Number one is always be faithful. Be faithful to one another. When you get married, you commit to devoting your life to that person. And even when times are tough, don't believe that the grass is greener on the other side because it isn't. Number two, look after each other as best you can. And uh, they noted that this includes even holding one another's hand when you cross the street. Oh, right? Number three, be tolerant of each other. Everyone has bad habits and annoying habits, whether it's leaving a towel on the floor or listening to the radio too loudly. I guess radio too loudly is kind of relative when you're 110, right? Now, listen to each other. Number four, the most important thing in a relationship is to listen. People don't listen anymore because they are too busy with work and TV. Um, I don't, maybe they haven't heard about the cell phone. Maybe they haven't heard about uh, screen time, but I would include those as well. Number five, respect, care, cherish, love, and value your partner. Always treat them how you want to be treated yourself. The number one thing that they said about a successful marriage was faithfulness. I'd like to contrast that with um, what happens here in America today. 35% of all American adults have had a breakup in their relationship with their significant other in the past 10 years. And in fact, half of all American adults are not married or in a relationship with someone else. And those who have broken up, that 35% that broke up, they say, the women said that their number one reason why they broke up was infidelity. So there you have the contrast. We have faithfulness on one side brings success, 90 years. Unfaithfulness, breakup, breaking of a relationship. Our relationship with the Lord is the same. God is the one who is so faithful to us, faithful in all things and at all times. And we are called to be faithful to Him. And yet that is a very difficult task because our God wants complete loyalty from us. But at the same time, our God is so gracious, so kind, that He gives all the grace that we need 
for that to be accomplished in our lives. I'd like to read for you from uh, James 4. I'm going to read from verses 4 to 6. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, even when your word has a pointing finger right at us, Lord, we thank you for it. Because, Lord, we know that you can use it to change us, to mold us. As we come to you humbly, Lord, you can use it to give us grace and to change us into the image of your Son. Father, we thank you for your word, and may this time now even be an act of worship to you, to glorify you in all things. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can write this down. I choose wholehearted devotion to God. No compromise. I choose wholehearted devotion to God. The first thing, you adulterous people. In the Greek, it's literally adulteresses, adulteresses, adulteresses. You unfaithful people. Who are you whoring after and being unfaithful to your husband? Now, the people in the time of James would have known exactly what James was saying. Because they had heard that many times before because of the prophets of old. When the prophets of old had come to the people of Israel and Israel had turned away from God, the prophets often accused them of being unfaithful wives as a nation. Now, if we turn to Jeremiah, and I'm going to go to Jeremiah uh, 3.30. It reads, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. The same thing is spoken of in Mark in chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus says the same thing about the Jews. He calls them a, an adulterous and sinful generation. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, the church is described as a bride of Christ, betrothed to one husband. What James is pointing out is when we turn away from God, we are committing spiritual adultery. And who is this mistress that pulls us away? That pulls us away from our faithfulness to the one true God? It's the world. But what is the world? What does James mean by the world? James means that we are living as though this world, here and now, is all that there is. There isn't anything else. We're living as though the values, desires, and aspirations of this temporal realm are all there is. We're beginning to think, talk, act, dress like the world. 
Now, as we go here, after he calls us adulteresses, he next says, do you not know? He's basically saying, you know this already. What's the matter with you? If you've read this book, you know what it says, and you know that it means to be faithful to God alone. Don't you know that? And then from there he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the word enmity, I thought, I don't really understand what enmity means. So I looked up in the dictionary and it said unfriendly. So here it is. You either are being friendly with the world or you're being friendly with God. You're becoming unfriendly with God when you're being friendly with the world. In other words, if you're flirting with the world, it is becoming offensive to God. And if you are so inclined to begin to follow the world, then you need to ask yourself, am I deceived about my relationship with the Lord? Now, It goes on from there, and it says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, the therefore is bringing us to, to a conclusion. This isn't just simply a repeat of the, what was just said before. This is actually taking it up a notch, because what it also says, too, is that Whoever wishes, and wishes is actually willful desire, making a choice. And so, if you are making a choice to be a friend of the world, know this, you are making a choice to be an enemy of God. It's a deliberate choice. You cannot be kind of God's friend you cannot be kind of saved. You are either God's friend or you are God's enemy. James is a book that tells us of many different tests, and this is sort of a test too, because when you come into the trials and things in your life, I want you to think about when you've been backed into a corner, when things have been as difficult, as rough as you can think. Where did you turn? Did you turn to the world to find a solution to your problem? Or did you turn to the one and only God who's able to care for you and to bring you peace in the middle of whatever it is? James previously talks about the, the, the rich, arrogant oppressors of the poor. And he talked about how they were not a very good example of being Christians. In fact, you know what? They were faking it, and they were not even doing a very good job of faking it, Right? Do you not know that we are equally in danger of doing the same thing here and now today? The, the danger is just as real. It is, it is just as easy to think that you can be a friend of the world, think that you can be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. But God's word says no. You're either God's friend, and if you're being a friend with the world, then you have made yourself God's enemy. God isn't looking for like the arrogant rulers who were coming in and they were oppressing people while outside the church but come in the church and act like that they, that they loved God. 
God isn't looking for you to do that. He's not looking for you to come and bring him a rose and a box of chocolates and think that he's going to be okay with your love affair with the world. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you changing your behavior, behavior mod. He wants your heart. And if he has your heart, then he can change you and the way you live out your life. If you will give your passions to him. Now, this is a hard word. Okay? I just have to step back for a moment and say, you know what, this is, I've had a week to take this in. You're hearing it now. It's hard. And you know what? None of us has arrived. I've not arrived. I am one who is a believer in God, and he is my all in all. He is all I need and all I want. And yet I am tempted just as you are. I am tempted. Here's what I do. I pull out my phone, and I look at the real estate app, and I think, oh, that'd be a cool house to live in, right? That's the worldly trap that pulls me in. My, my wife says that my phone itself is a worldly trap to me because I don't know if any of you are um, Lord of the Ring fans, but she calls it my precious because I take it out of my pocket and I hold it and I touch my precious, <laughs> right? Anybody identify? Okay. So this is hard, but none of us has arrived. What James is wanting us to see is that a, a Christian can sometimes be pulled away, but that should not be where our heart is. But if you are living in such a position that what is happening in your life is worldly and always worldly, then you need to ask yourself, did I really make a commitment to the Lord? We are either God's friend or you're God's enemy. You are wholeheartedly fixed on Christ are you in love with another? If you're flirting with the world, stop it. You're putting yourself in danger. Christians do not have the freedom to divide their love and loyalty between God and the world. It's a matter of either or, and you must make a deliberate choice. Now, please don't get me wrong. I, I am not saying that if you made a choice to follow the Lord and now you find yourself overwhelmed with just worldly desires, I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation. What I'm saying is this. If you have a story, a time when you chose to follow God, a time when you realized that you were spiritually bankrupt and the only one that could save you from your sin problem is Jesus Christ, and then you began to show fruit and change in your life, then yeah, you're saved. You passed this test. You were God's friend. But James wants you to realize and be careful of the compromise don't compromise. Be faithful to the Lord. Turn back to Him. And I would ask you this. Do you remember a time when you had a really deep relationship with the Lord and just really enjoyed your closeness with the Lord? Then I would say, get back there as fast as you can. Do everything you need to do that. And if you're stuck and you're not sure how to move from one to the other, then you know what? Talk to the people in your small group. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to a pastor. Talk to an elder. Come up afterward. We have people who are ready to pray with you. Don't stay stuck. Move toward the Lord. Now, here's the other side. What if you say, I, I don't remember a time when I ever realized that I was spiritually bankrupt. I, I don't have a story. Well, you know what? Let me encourage you to have that story be your story right now here today. 
The only one who can save you is Jesus Christ. All you need to do is confess your sin, repent and turn to Christ, and receive the forgiveness and life that he has given you, his finished work on the cross that we just sang about. And so I ask you, before you leave this room, give your life to him. And don't just, you can do it in the quiet, even of your seat right now. But if you choose to do that, I would just really encourage you to, to share it with someone else. To share it with someone who you know is following the Lord. I'm going to show you a video. And this is a video, a short video of a chameleon. Now, when I was growing up, they always told me that chameleons change their color according to their environment. So he's turning green because he's in a green environment. I recently found out that that's not true. Chameleons change their color based on their mood. When they're feeling comfortable, they turn green. When they feel like they're being threatened, they might turn blue or red, a bright color. They also might turn that color when they're feeling a little uh, amorous, kind of a little sexy, if they can change color. Here's the thing. The chameleon changes its color not because it's forced to based on its environment. The chameleon changes its color because of its mood, how it feels. Brothers, sisters, Christians, we can do the same thing. When you find yourself in an environment of worldly people, do you change to the color of worldliness? I want you to know that just because you're alone around worldly people, you don't need to change and look like them. You can show your true colors as a believer in Jesus Christ. You can be a light to them. You can stand out so that they can see what it means to know and love the Lord. When you are with worldly people, don't fall into the trap of thinking this world is all there is. God created you for eternity, and he created you so that you could worship him for eternity. Being a friend of the world is offensive to God. Stop flirting with the world. Adulteresses. Some say that this is the day and age of worldly Christians, and that's okay. But I say no, because like I said before, it might be okay for a Christian once in a while to be pulled away into the trappings of the world, but if you are living there in that place, perhaps you're deceived about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I ask you this. Who's influencing you? Who's in your environment? Are you being influenced by your worldly friends? Are you being influenced by godly friends? How about this? Who's influencing your children? Are you the guardian of your home influencing your children for God? Or are you the very conduit through which the world is entering your home and influencing them? How do you spend your time, your talent, and your money? How does that reveal where your heart is? How about this? Can I ask you a question? Is there anything that you have that if it were taken away from you, 
It would make you angry. Is it an item in your wardrobe? A piece of jewelry? Is it your car? Is it your newly remodeled home? It could burn in an instant. God can take your favorite phone, your favorite computer, and zap it in an instant and take it away. If he did, would that make you angry? Is that the kind of grip you have on it? You can write this down. I will choose to worship God alone. No compromise. I choose wholeheartedly to give devotion to God, and I choose to worship God alone. If you go with me to to verse 5, it reads, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, When I first read that, it took me a minute to really try and understand it because it it, it seems like it's kind of one of those negative, twisted, rhetorical question kind of things that I wasn't sure about. And so um, let me give you the Mike Kiowski-like breakdown version really quick. And, And what I would say is that there's a reason or a purpose that Scripture says. And then it goes on to the verse. And the verse is, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Um, there's a problem. Uh, all of the scholars have searched the scriptures, and they can't seem to find that verse in the Old Testament. And so there's a little bit of a problem with this verse, and it might look different depending on what kind of Bible you have. But I'm going to stay with the ESV because I I believe it has it right the way they've written it. They believe that this verse actually is that James took all of the teaching about God's jealous love for us and that is how he summed it up. That he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The word yearns is he strongly desires. God strongly desires you. And jealous means that his heart aches for you. God desires you. His heart aches for you that you would come to him and worship him. Now, there's also a problem with the word spirit. Some say it should be big S, spirit. Some people, little s, spirit. Like I said, if you have a different Bible version, that's going to look different. But I believe the way the ESV has it with little s is consistent with the content and the context of what is being said here. That that God yearns and loves and his heart aches for us, our spirit, little s. And he longs for us, but he has created us to worship him to bring glory to him. And when we find ourselves in the horizontal, then we are drawing ourselves away from our true purpose of being made to bring vertical worship to him. It says in John 4, 24, 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and he gave us a spirit in our lives, who we are, and created us so that we could worship him in spirit. If you go to Exodus, and I'm going to Exodus 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Some say that jealous God can't be jealous because jealous in James is a negative emotion. I don't believe that's true. I think God can have jealous for us because that his heart aches for us. That is godly jealousy. God wants us to move off of the horizontal and to worship him alone. I have a picture here of the Mona Lisa. You don't like my picture of the Mona Lisa? Okay. The Mona Lisa is doing a ducky-faced selfie, right? And I am here as a public service announcement to tell you that the world is obsessed with selfies, but you need to stop it. It is dangerous. You could get killed. You don't believe me? Okay. How many of you, if I told you to go swimming in shark-infested waters, would go swim in shark-infested waters? Nobody wants to raise their hand? Do you know that more people have died from, from selfie mishaps, selfie fatalities, than have died from shark attacks. Yes, it's true. So, in, the, in 2015, 22 people died from selfie fatalities. In 2016, and we're only in June, already 28 people have died from selfie accidents. That is more than a... We're on... We're on track for more than a 100% increase each year of selfie fatalities. And so, stop taking selfies. I love you. I want you to stay here and be here, right? Now, a 15-year-old was taking a picture of himself in front of a train. Boom, gone. A young Japanese tourist was taking a picture of himself at the Taj Mahal. So what do you do in a, in a selfie? You superimpose your face on some attraction, some wonder of the world. So here he is, this teenager, superimposing his face on one of the wonders of the world, and he loses his, fitting, his footing, and he falls down the stairs to his death. You and I are just in as much danger when we come to worship the Lord and what we want to do. Instead of getting a picture of vertical worship and worshiping only the Lord, we want to superimpose our face, our circumstance, our difficulties on top of that. And we want to take the focus off of Jesus and put the focus on us. And that's what we do when we are caught into worldly things. But I believe this that the pathway back is vertical worship. And so we need to recognize and see 
that we no longer need to worship those things in this world. We need to worship the one and only Jesus Christ. Now, this can happen when we come here in church. This can happen when we're here in God's manifest presence. But I also know that this happens in your car when you're driving and you're worshiping and singing. I've seen you, right? This can also happen when we have the right attitude, the right heart, and all that we do is an act of service to the Lord. This can happen when you're making dinner for your family. This can happen when you're fixing the sink for your family. This can happen wherever you are. When you have the right heart, it becomes an act of worship to our one creator. So worship him. The other is you can worship God through your words, through the very speech and talk and conversation that you have on a daily basis. You can point others vertically to our God, our wonderful, the things that he's done, the testimony of the way he's cared for you, watched over you, protected you, blessed you, giving you grace upon grace when you've messed up. And you can do that whether you're at school, whether you're at the gym, whether you're standing in line at the grocery store, or if you're just sitting in the waiting room waiting for your tires to be rotated. Wherever you are, you can point people vertically to the one and only true God. And know this, they may not even realize it, but they were created to do the same thing. And you just might encourage them to seek him as well. Our God's great, jealous love for us should move us to love, cherish, and choose him in all things. And we should proudly flaunt it before the world, our affection for our God. And every chance we do that, and as we do, he gives us grace upon grace to move forward. Our God demands that we have exclusive allegiance to him alone. And that's not easy. It can seem impossible. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, it is. But St. Augustine said, God gives what he demands. God doesn't demand that we should give him full allegiance if he's not ready to give us the grace and the capacity to do that very task. And he does. He promises to give us the grace we need. Grace is the antidote to our worldliness, just as antidotes are there to take away poison, God's grace is there to take away our worldliness. You can write this down. I choose humility to abide in God's grace. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. More grace. More sin means more grace. God just continues to give it. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God is always ready to give us grace. And now it says, therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word opposes means that he thwarts the plans, the ideas, the strivings. 
He's against them. He's not going to let it go through. And by the proud, it literally means the arrogant. So the arrogant who believe that they don't need God, God is ready to stop them in their tracks, to thwart their plans. And but then it says, God gives grace to the humble. God's grace is his loving kindness. And that's what it, the context here is. And I also want you to let you know that when this time when it says, it says, there really is a verse. And this comes from Proverbs 3.34. And the grace that God gives us is a grace we don't deserve. His loving kindness is what we don't deserve, and yet he gives it over and over again. And in fact, it says in Romans 2 that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. God's grace is what leads us to come to him and to receive forgiveness. When we, when we come to the Lord and we confess our failure about falling into worldliness, God is not there ready to crush us, pound us, punish us. There might be consequences because of what you've done, but God is there to give you his kindness, to draw you back to himself, to give you forgiveness, to give you his gift of grace. And grace comes in two different ways. First, we all, it can be an event when we have saving grace, salvation, when God takes us from, from spiritual death to spiritual life, when we come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But God's grace is also sanctifying grace. That's the kind of grace that sustains us day to day as believers. As we come to him and confess that we are insufficient and that he is there, he gives us grace, he picks us up, and he cares for us. Through his loving kindness, he helps us to grow from immature child of God to mature child of God, if we are willing to allow him to do that. If we're willing to listen to him. And that's what humility is. Humility is when I am willing to listen to what God says about who I am. Humility is when I'm ready to, to read this book and look at it as if it were a mirror and as it speaks to me and tells me what I need to change. I turn around and I make a change. I move toward God. That's what this book is about. And that's what a humble heart is about. It's someone who's ready to see themselves as God sees them in this book. A loved child, but also a child that God wants to change into the image of his son. The proud, well, the proud are blind. The proud are deaf. The proud believe the lie that they're okay. The proud looks at their neighbor and says, oh, I'm better than them. If I'm okay better than them, then I must be okay with God. I don't need to worry about changing. I don't need to be worrying about any kind of problems that I have. And as they do so, it deadens their, their ears, their spiritual ears to the Spirit who's speaking to them. And soon enough, all they hear is the folly of the voices of the world. Recently, not too long ago in the distant past, um, I had to take this personality test. And 
the result of the personality test uh, said that I have low self-esteem. That was crushing to me. It hurt my self-esteem. <laughs> it wasn't a Christian thing, so I, 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 uh, they're not taking into account humility. But no, it kept nagging at my heart. God used it to continue to nag at my heart. And I began to realize that I see myself through the eyes of how other people see me. I let other people's voice speak to me more than I let God speak to me. And I realized that it was pride because my pride was letting me think that I was okay. And and it was being fed by something too. It was being fed by the fact that I was just finishing up taking classes at Moody. And I'm a good student. I was getting good grades. And so, you know what? That was rewarding me into thinking that I was okay. That knowledge equaled maturity. But knowledge never equals maturity. When When you gain knowledge, all you're doing is putting things up in your head. All I was getting was a big head, and it was lying to me about whether or not I needed to change, whether or not I realized who I was whether or not what was going up here, if it doesn't go from here to our heart, it doesn't mature us, it doesn't change us. The battle was that I let people speak to me louder than I let God speak to me. Their voice was more important. And I didn't have a self-esteem problem. I had a God-esteem problem. I needed to esteem what God said about who I was. Whether it was the fact that I realized that I belong to him, he loves me deeply, and that I am his cross-bought child, or whether or not he shows me something in this book that I need to change. It doesn't mean he loves me any less. And so I began to realize, as I began to surrender that, God began to work. And as I admit that and open that up, God began to give me grace, upon grace to grow and to change me. And I've not arrived there. I'm still working on it. I suspect you are too. And I have this challenge to you. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you go to small group and week after week, month after month, year after year, you have the same prayer request. And that's to help you with your devotions. And you know what? If that is your prayer request forever, that means you're just in an intellectual exercise because God should be pointing out very specific things as you read this book. And that should be changing over and over because he wants to change your heart. He wants you to surrender your heart to him. So where is God calling you to change in this book. Where is it that God wants to extend to you grace upon grace upon grace? I don't know what that is, but God knows what that is. And if you'll seek him, he'll show you. And he will give you all the grace you need. Our loving God yearns for you as a jealous God. His heart aches for you. 
And he wants to give you grace upon grace. If we humbly seek his, his face, he will give it to us. And when we trust God in the fire and trials and difficulties of this life, and we refuse to let the world be our Savior, but we claim Jesus Christ is our Savior, then God promises to give us the grace to get through whatever we face. I know it's not easy. I know I'm not asking you to an easy thing. The battle is real. The battle is daily. The world wants your heart. The world wants your children's heart. Stay faithful. Keep fighting. God wants to give you the grace to stand in the battle. And he wants to give you success through his spirit at work in you. Devote yourself to Christ. Holy, completely. Worship him alone. Confess your failures and your struggles to him. And he will give you the grace let him know where you've compromised. And then move with worship to be loyal to him alone and receive his grace wherever it's needed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word even when it comes with a pointing finger of accusation. Because, Lord, we know that behind the pointed finger a loving God who cares for us, who loves us, who wants to give us forgiveness, kindness, grace upon grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that when we come to you and confess the trappings of worldliness, that you're there, ready to bring us back to you, to ready us for repentance and to forgive us. So, Lord, we just surrender our lives to you. Protect our eyes and our hearts from the temptations of worldliness. And keep us steadfast and faithful to you in all things and forevermore. And we pray this in your name, Jesus.